I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today has been involved in the selection of three of the NFL's leading quarterbacks. John Dorsey, former executive with the Green Bay Packers, general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs, and general manager of the Cleveland Browns, was trained under Ron Wolf, the Hall of Fame leader of the Green Bay Packers. It was under Ron's tutelage that he hired Mike Holmgren, who delivered a Super Bowl championship. I welcome one of the most gifted eyes for talent in the National Football League, John Dorsey. Welcome, friends. John, a pleasure to have you on. I've known you for almost 25 years, middle of uh, our middle of middle of 95. I came to the up to see Ron Wolf about assessment. He said, I need you to talk to this person. And you happen to be the person that he gave me uh, to connect and talk through the AVA. I, I remember that uh, like it was yesterday. Thanks for having me on, by the way. I do remember that day. And then at that time, you made me take an assessment test. The question was what Ron wanted to find out if it was valid or not. And after taking the test and giving it to other people, I think we went and uh, we used it a couple a couple of years uh, for some drafts moving forward. Yeah, no, we used it. In fact, uh, he had his wife come through the training when we did it. And well, I, I, you know, Edie's got a PhD in psychology. Right. That would probably be a good uh, good person for him to reference it. Yeah, good endorsement. Good endorsement. Just in context, you know, you've been someone that I've admired and respected in terms of how you go about your job and the way you deal with people. You know, today was an interesting day. You were talking about voting and how long it took, how many blocks you had to stand in in order to to do uh, what we're fortunate enough to be able to do in our country. You know, it's, it's one of those freedoms uh, that all Americans are, are allowed to. And I think that it's our, it's our civic duty as an Americans to vote, especially in, in times like this. Uh, I will say that the voter turnout in uh, the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County is, is large. Um, I know I had to wait three hours and with my wife, and then we sat in the rain a little bit. And at the end of it, um, we did our responsibility and we did what we had to do. And that's what we're supposed to do. And then you've got an exciting uh, Saturday coming up, although we are sitting in the middle of a pandemic. So how does Halloween work for your two young ones? Well, it's going to be a little different this year. Uh, so far, so good in the state of Ohio and in uh, Cuyahoga County. Uh, there are no restrictions on trick-or-treating. Uh, the kids and myself will go out uh, tomorrow night 
uh, go around the neighborhood, you know, 50, 60 houses, and then come on back. And I think Trish is going to make them some chili, and then we're going to sit down and probably do a family movie. So you're a, a UConn grad, football player there, grew up in Maryland. How did you end up getting into football to begin with? Back in the 60s, I mean, you know, you played every sport. And in our neighborhood, we probably had 20, 20 boys back then. I probably say I started seven years old. That was the sport I evolved in. I mean, I played baseball, I played basketball, I played lacrosse, and I played football, and I evolved in it. Uh, I wound up going to um, St. Mary's High School in Annapolis, Maryland, and I was a 185-pound defensive end. But that, I knew that wasn't going to be good enough. So then I, I went to a place called For, uh, Fork Union Military Academy that really kind of – there was a gentleman there named uh, Red Pulliam, and he, he's one of those guys within my life that kind of um, guided me, molded me, taught me the beliefs of body, mind, and spirit, those principles I still adhere to today. And he helped basically a boy grow up to be a man. And then from there, uh, I was going to go to North Carolina, but they told me I wouldn't play until my junior year. So I wound up going to University of Connecticut. Uh, and the reason I went there is because my father had played football with one of the coaches on the staff at the time. And it was an ideal fit. And I have no regrets. I loved every minute of it. And then in 1984, I went off. Got drafted by the Green Bay Packers. And then you spent uh, a number of years as a player. And then it, when you retired, there was a gentleman by the name of Ron Wolf, who was your general manager, if I'm correct. Uh, it, it was. Actually, it starts. Um, There's also another gentleman named uh, Bob Harlan, who was then the president of the uh, Green Bay Packers. And he had come to me after uh, I'd finished playing professional football. He goes, John, you want to work for the organization? I said, Mr. Harland, um, you know what? I, I think I may. He says, why don't you come back in six months? And then if you still are interested, uh, we'll, we'll find a position for you. So Bob was the first one to kind of help me. And then we were, like, you know, we were lucky enough to have Ron Wolf come there about October. And then ever since then, uh, I consider Ron one of my mentors as well in terms of teaching me the fundamentals of football. I mean, it's, he's, an, he's an incredible man with an incredible vision and uh, philosophy on how to uh, build football teams. You developed a unique skill in terms of evaluating players. Was he the person that, that helped you the most? How were you coached uh, when you assess someone to know whether or not you were doing it right, doing it wrong? How did that process work? Well, I think the, the blueprint and the system that uh, Ron brought with him um, is a combination of Lee Steinberg, is probably a um, combination of Al Davis at the time. He brought that to Green Bay. At the time, he, he was very much an advocate of teaching, open-door policy. He was willing to teach you as much as you wanted to learn. And through trial and error, he began to teach a young group of scouts what it takes to build championship football teams in terms of the, of the roster. I think we're very fortunate back in those, those uh, days, not only to have a, a quality personnel staff, 
but the best coaching staff I'd ever been around. Uh, that was when Ron had hired uh, Mike Holmgren and the staff that he brought was like none other I've seen. But getting back to the, um, the, the, the building part of it, Ron was a teacher and he taught us and he, he never had a closed door agenda. Uh, if you had a question, he would always answer it. And then he allowed us to grow and take ownership in our craft and let us go as far as we wanted. From your perspective, your ability to spot talent and then to get background information, the way you would dig and so forth, had that evolved for you so that you were able to really identify unique people, not just a number one pick, but somebody later in the draft or a free agent or somebody that he was coming through for a workout? I think the first, first and foremost, the most important thing, uh, Jed, is to can they play the game of football? Once you understand the positional specifics and the traits of success, uh, of, of, of the ability to play in the National Football League, um, then you have to go in inside and then be able to do the legwork to find out what is really in the core of the, of the individual, of the man, what drives him, how much pride does he have with regards to loving the game of football? Is he one of those guys that you would love to have in the community? So at the end of the day, are they good people? Do they love the game of football? Are they truly passionate about it? And then, you know, once you've identified that they can play in the National Football League, the, the key is being able to acquire them at the right levels during the course of the draft. When you talk about what's the, the breaking point, what's the line that you have to get above to say, okay, this person is NFL capable? Does he dominate? I look at it this way. When he plays the game of football, regardless of what level they're on, either it be a Power Five conference all the way down to NAIA, does he separate himself from those on the field? Is he what like in the, in the, in Division One AA and lower Division Two, II, Division Three? Is he a difference maker on the field? Then that also translates into Division One um, players as well. Now. Let's be truthful here because the majority of the National Football League players are Division One. I, I would say 82% of the, the players that play in the National Football League are Division One, and the rest of them are 1AA and less. But does he perform his task very successfully? Does he love the game? I think that's, that's very important. Now, your due diligence that you do on people, because I know from having an opportunity to work with you, I mean, you get on... You're, you're a road warrior, as I would describe it. Different in this pandemic, you just loved you know, going on the road for extended periods of time and being able to evaluate players on campuses, at games. You just had a variety of different ways. Anything unique that you think that you did that, was, that made you um, so successful in identifying talent? You work. I mean, that's, that's what it's about. You, you work at your craft and you try to be the best at your craft you possibly can. And if that takes, you know, when you go to a school, when you begin to try to find out a player's background, not only do you talk to the people within the football building itself, but then you go to the dormitories. If you really like that player, what do you do? You go to his hometown and you talk to people in his hometown and find out, you know, what he's like as a person. 
and what the people of, of, of his community think of him. Because eventually that person's going to have to revolve in your community where your NFL club is uh, and, and be, you know, an active member of that community. So you're just going to, you know, you have to do your due diligence and work. And that's what you do. You just work. So when Rogers was selected with Green Bay, what was your involvement in that? I had gone out to his workout. I had been out, I've been out on the West Coast, went to his workout. That wasn't, I mean, we all were advocate of him. He was the best quarterback in the draft. Uh, everybody in the draft room saw it the way that Ted had ran his draft was he allowed people to talk and freely talk. Talking Ted Thompson, the GM. Yes. And, and, and that's in a collaborative manner. When you sit in that seat as the GM, like Ted was at the time, he just took all the information is. And then as you begin to watch the draft board unfold and who needs what, uh, you begin to get a feel that uh, there's a possibility that, you know, he possibly could land uh, to, to him. What made him unique? Why, would, why did he stand out even though he fell in the draft? There, there's, two, there's two reasons there. Uh, he had the physical capabilities that you look for in really good football players in terms of arm strength, quickness of, of release. He had a, a different throwing motion because back in, back in the day, uh, a Coach Tedford quarterback throwing motion was a lot different than a lot of other quarterbacks that came out of there. But Aaron had a unique mind. He had, he had an incredible mind. He was smart. He never would get flustered. He was extremely competitive. And I think that shows up in his play today because he can, he's one of those young guys who can actually walk up to the line of scrimmage and know what defenses he's going to face before the ball's even snapped. And you, and you need those quick mental reactions from quarterbacks in today's football. If you think about any other players during your time at Green Bay that you would accentuate that you were actively involved in identifying and so forth, who, who would jump out at you? I always tease on this one. I actually did sign a college free agent who actually made the Hall of Fame. His name was Kurt Warner. You signed him with Green Bay? Yeah. But I mean, that was now he he was in a situation now where you had you had Brett there, you had uh, Brunel there, you had Ty Detmer there, and then Kurt Warner comes on board. So, you know, the coaches were going to stay with those three guys. So eventually he was going to have to be released. And to his credit, um, he continued that his craft. He went to the indoor league. I think he went into the uh, USFL as well. And then he got a chance. And I think Charlie Army was the one that actually signed him with the St. Louis Rams. And he wound up in a system that was perfect for him. And the rest is history. So you get your opportunity. You've been, the, you've been in the Packers for 20 years. Uh, you get reunited. You talked about this amazing staff that Mike Holmgren put together. And you look today and you've got you know, Andy Reid and John Gruden and, and a number of other people that were in that in that room uh, so you you two are paired uh, I was doing the search for the Jets at the time and we were very interested in you and I think the loyalty you had with Andy and coming there with him and looking to rebuild the culture and so forth was really exciting for the both of you I remember coming to the opening game when you had talked about how you guys had passed out information for the whole team and for the whole organization on how you're really kind of building a new culture that had needed to be rebuilt because it was, a, it was in shambles when uh, you two got there. 
No, and then, you know, kind of what we did there is I think the very first thing when we first got there is I think you wanted to gain the respect of the football operations. And that's everybody within football operations and the players. And then what happened was then you had to change the culture within the entire organization from top to bottom and get them out of that funk of losing was acceptable. Two and 14 was good. That's not why you're in this game today. You're in this game because football is a very competitive game. Andy and I had been around an organization but we knew how they did it. And when Andy was in Philadelphia, he had, he had done it as well. You take that simple game plan and, that, and that's like you build through the draft, you be selected in free agency, you're active in trades, uh, you understand everybody's ro roster, you're establishing a working environment that encourages everybody to improve and you have an open communication. Um, and you give everybody ownership and allow them to grow. And it was funny because Andy and I used to always joke about, okay, just roll up our sleeves every day and come in with low ego and no ego and just go to work. And, and that's what you did. You created that environment that was no ego. You were inclusive in your thought and you came to work and you, because at that time, what you're trying to do is you're trying to reestablish one of those proud franchises uh, in the National Football League. During your time there, you identified and recruited maybe the most exciting player in the National Football League today in Patrick Mahomes. He ended up, I believe, trading up for him. Talk about that process of how you identified him, how you got people to buy in that he was the right person, how the trade was executed and so forth. You first go out and you identify who are the best players. Then you go in and you build your draft board. And then you begin to have conversations with the coaching staff, with the personnel staff, as well as ownership. Everybody knew that Patrick Mahomes in that building from the head coach to then the, head, the current head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles and the current head coach of the um, Chicago Bears. Everybody was on board here. Doug may have not been there, and I'm trying to think if Doug was there or not. Uh, at the time. But what I, what I was saying is when you, everybody was in agreement that this guy was the guy. So then what you had to do is we're sitting at 27 and we had to decide how can we get up and get this guy? Uh, because we had always told Clark, after, you know, by five years, we'd get to your franchise quarterback. Clark Hunt, um, the owner. We began to identify the four teams that we felt that we're going to need a quarterback. We identified those things. And without revealing your cards to them, you be, began slowly trying to just feel through the draft process. We were fortunate enough to where we identified who the highest position club was who would take the quarterback at the time in the draft. So we went above them by one. We had a chance to go and make a deal with the Buffalo Bills. At the time, we had come to an agreement about two days before the draft that we would we would uh, do the deal. And you hold your breath for two days because anything can happen because it's not official until you're on the clock. So who made and who came up with the, the deal, John? How was that put together? The deal itself. Uh, well, what you do, it, you, you, you put values in there in terms of, OK, if you move up 17 spots, what is that worth? That's worth a one and a three um, on the value chart back, back then. 
I was willing to go up for and give them a two, and I was ready to give them a two for that player. So what you're giving up for a franchise player is basically you're getting a giving away a one and a three next year. And I think um, in hind, hindsight, as, I mean, we all knew that was the move we were going to make. And we just kind of were very patient. We had a lot of, uh, we had a little bit of luck involved. And, you know, sometimes when you go to, go to mass the day of the draft, sometimes that helps out too. What about Patrick that made him so unique? Unbelievable physical traits. Uh, one thing that people undersell and miss on him is I believe he's a, uh, he's a four-time Big 12 uh, academic, uh, all Big 12. He's very smart. Uh, he doesn't get rattled. Um, he, he's got great eyes. Um, his father being a former professional athlete as well, I think kind of helped mature him for being around professional athletes. I think one of the greatest things that I ever heard come out of his mouth, one day he was telling the story how he was at batting practice with his dad with the Texas Rangers. And he was watching this guy hit off the baseball tee. And he did it for about an hour and a half and hour and a half to two hours. He went up to him and he goes, uh, Alex, why do you do that? Is Alex Rodriguez. He goes, why do you do that? He goes, Patrick. Because the little things matter if you really want to be great. I think it's a, that's, that shows you the fundamental within his core, the fundamental beliefs of doing the little things right to achieve great success. And that was in his DNA for a long time. During your period of time, you know, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey were a couple of the other, you know, blue chip five-star kinds of players that you identified and brought onto the team. Any unique ways you found them? I mean, Tyreek Hill obviously was at a smaller, had some issues and, and the like, and you still made the decision to go after him. Yeah. I mean, with regards to Travis, um, I think I'd start with Travis first. Uh, from Cleveland Heights, Ohio, went to the University of Cincinnati, was a quarterback, then transitioned over to a tight end, gifted athlete who was an incredible athlete, really incredible athlete, um, was one of those guys that truly loved the game of football. He had a little bit of a, you know, wild, wild hair to him a little bit, but the more people you talk to, they really all love the kid. Um, he's just a young kid and he had to grow up a little bit. But you saw all the skill sets. That happened to be a year where there were a lot of marquee tight ends that came out in that draft. And he kind of slipped down a little bit. And once you've identified him, you're like, you got to take this guy in the third round. Now, Tyreek Hill is a different story. Uh, it's probably as extensive of a background check as we've, um, we've ever done on a player. In combination, uh, if you're going to make a move like that somewhere in the draft, you better make sure that you upmanage and keep ownership and informed of the of the decisions of what's going to happen with this player when you do acquire him. He had physical traits that very few people have in terms of his explosive speed. And I'm not talking 100 meters. I'm talking he's, he's, he can accelerate in a 10-yard space as good as anybody I've ever seen uh, in the National Football League. And at the time, in the risk-reward business we're in, 
in the fifth round, I thought that was it was a fair value for the risk reward that you could get in return for his skill set. When you go to the Browns, another team that is really cratering in terms of they have they've traded away, they have a lot of draft picks. Again, you're in a situation where you're trying to identify, you know, your quarterback, and there are two or three people that seem to be at the top of the list, and you your organization uh, decides you're going to go with, uh, with Baker. So talk about how that came about because you had the quarterback that is it with the jets right now, Darnold. And then you had the quarterback who's with the Buffalo bills. And you also Lamar had the, Jackson as well. Yeah. And Lamar Jackson. All right. That's right. Last year's MVP. That was what we did. One of the things we did during Patrick Mahomes is, um, draft is we brought five quarterbacks into the organization at that time. And we, what we did is we spent an enormous amount of time with these guys all day. And that way you could find out really how much they understood the the game of football, how much retention they had. And then you could actually, you know, just, just learn and see what they're about. So then we took that another level in Cleveland is we decided to go fly and see all five of the quarterbacks coming out that year only because uh, it was tantamount that we get a real quarterback uh, in, in, in that organization. So we went and we first went out to see Josh Rose and then we went and saw Sam Darnold. Then we went to see Baker Mayfield. Then we went up to Josh Allen's workout. Then we went to Lamar Jackson's workout as well. Uh, the very first thing that we saw with regards to Baker's leadership. Once you walk on the, the Oklahoma campus, there's a certain leadership style that he has that endears himself to all of his teammates. Uh, then you sit him down on um, the X and O part of it for hours, and he just blows that away. So he's got mental, he's got more than enough mental acuity. Then when you go watch his workout, there's a physical skill set and release to his throws that none of the other four had that he had. But at the end of the day, again, when you make a decision like that number one pick, there was unanimous consent. And that's not only the personnel, not only the coaches, but also in Cleveland, there was a degree of analytics involved and they were behind it 100% as well. So the entire organization was behind this pick unanimously 100%. It was, it was, it was not that hard of a pick at the end of the day. What were you looking for for the analytics people to give you? First off, it's it's not just in that one particular player. You're going to review everything that they say, but they had had him rated as high as any quarterback that they had ever evaluated. And you take that you take that in the, with 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 an understanding. But I think now with analytics, we've tried to do is we incorporate that now that into our draft building model and our free agency model. Uh, I've begun to incorporate that into actual acquisition of players as well. So when you say that, I mean, you brought Jarvis Landry and then made this spectacular trade for Odell Beckham. Yes. So talk a little bit about how those things came about. Jarvis was a little bit different because at that time, what we were trying to do was we were trying to reestablish you're trying to reestablish one of those iconic football teams, the Cleveland Browns, and you're trying to make them come back to relevance. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to get players like 
uh, Jarvis Landry, we got Tyrod Taylor, we got uh, Demarius Randall, we got three trades uh, in one day done to try to accelerate this process to get guys that really were good football players. One thing I always heard about Jarvis is how competitive he was, how much he loved the game. And he played it that way. And I love guys that play the game in the competitive style that he plays in. And then we came, we came to an agreement uh, on that trade. That happened. Boom, that's done. And um, Tyrod Taylor gets done. Uh, Demarius Randall gets done. And that couldn't be official until uh, the start of the league year. But somehow that leaked out there. But it's quite interesting the way that social media is today. Once players saw that those three guys were coming to Cleveland, then that began to make the free agency process coming up a lot easier to terms of acquiring players to coming to Cleveland. Uh, the Odell Beckham uh, trade, uh, that took a while, but we felt really comfortable with getting him here because we had had his position coach at LSU, who was his position coach at the New York Giants, on our staff in Cleveland at the time. He came back with glowing remarks about him. So, Ben, you begin to make the call to, to Dave Gellerman and say, that, you know, we'll begin to orchestrate uh, conversations about that. And there was a moment there about 5 o'clock on the um, first day of the uh, league year, Dave and I were talking, and it sounded like, you know what, he may do this. I told everybody in the room, you know what, this may happen. And sure enough, we talked to each other about two hours later, and the rest is history. Again, Cleveland needed a guy like that to make the people of Northeastern Ohio proud that the Cleveland Browns are going to be relevant again. So when you think about the general manager roles you held in Kansas City and in Cleveland, has the role evolved? Uh, I mean, in the past, people have come out of different segments, most of them out of the personnel side. And sometimes you know, people are on the road and all of a sudden you're stuck in an office. Talk about how you think the jobs evolved and you know, how you felt you were well-equipped or things you had to learn. Well, no, it, you, you have to learn. It's, it's, it's a hard seat to sit in. And uh, when you sit at that seat, you have so many different issues that are gonna, you're going to face every day. So that's why it's so important, first off, to make sure that you have the best around you. You go out and recruit the guys that are best. You let them, empower them to take ownership. And eventually what you're going to do is you're going to create within that organization a culture of ownership. You have to be able to upmanage ownership. You have to be able to cross-manage everything in the football operations part of it. You got to make sure everybody's on sync. You got to be able to have a great working relationship with the head coach. I think the head coach and the general manager have to be lockstep, lockstep. And then you have to have constant communication on a, on a, on a daily basis. I think it's um, important that truth Truth, truth is the utmost, and you have to build trust by your actions, uh, day in and day out. You got to be willing to make hard, you know, hard, hard decisions, and you got to have, you know, clarity of thought. 
in terms of how you are going to go make a decision. And I think you have to be very inclusive in your decision-making process and you have to lay out a plan for everything and you have to be able to adjust these plans at different times, you know, different times of the year. Where do you feel like you had to be the most adaptable? Talking about the two different opportunities that you had um, and whether it be around a trade, around dealing with ownership, dealing with a coach, where you may have had to have shifted. It's a level of communication on a daily basis. As long as you have clarity of communication, everybody knows what's going on, then that transparency kicks in. Everybody feels that, you know what, they've had a say in the decisions that's going to that's going to occur right, wrong, or indifferent. But I think everybody's got to have a say. But at the end of the day, somebody's got to make a decision for the organization. And it's got to be, you know, what's best for the organization moving forward because you never make a move in professional football without the future in mind. And, and that's why you make moves because what you're trying to do is you try to build a team to get better and be, you know, and you have to be consistent day in and day out. I think, I think that's readily important. And then you also have to have a, you got to provide everybody the clear intent of the outcome of what's going to happen. So when you think about your core, your two or three things that, that you would put yourself in front of a train on, what, what would be those two or three core beliefs that you have uh, as as a general manager that you've learned to say, hey, these three things are non-negotiable. From a fundamental person standpoint, I put my Lionel in, uh, in front of a train for God and my family. No doubt about that. But the three things that are the most, I think, um, always tell the truth, never lie, because in that locker room, players can be able to sniff out if you're not telling them the truth. You have to be, regardless of how hard it is, you always have to have clarity of truth in anything that you do um, with involving those guys in that locker room. It all depends on the five-year plan that you've let, uh, laid out, Jed. There are certain things that are non-negotiable. Would you be willing, as an owner, to compromise? your five-year plan for instant gratification. I think you have to be patient in this, in this business because I think patience is not followed enough anymore in the National Football League. But if you want to sustain winning seasons back to back to back to back to back, you got to have a degree of patience uh, in, in how we go about this thing. In terms of Building a team, I think the core belief is you have to build through the draft the way that the economics of today's football are. You can't really fudge on the cap. I thought we did a great job in Cleveland of uh, staying on top of the cap where we were always in the top three in, in the years I was there. But, and then here's another thing is once a decision is made within the organization, it's the total, it's, it's the entire organization's decisions. And there can be no backbiting or, you know, closed door talk and this and that. It's got to be, we're all in this together. So as you, you think about the people you've been involved in selecting and so forth and the processes that you use, 
Is there anything that you learned that you would change or adjust or amend based on your sets of experiences? I mean, you've rebuilt two teams that have become very competitive. Well, you have to evolve. I think uh, in, in, in the 21st century and in, in today's National Football League, you have to be willing to listen. Listening is one of those, like my mom used to always say, God created two ears and a mouth for a reason. Basically, you have to listen. You have to listen. Once you hear and you sit and listen, you understand the entire organization. A friend of mine gave me a thing, uh, 31 core competencies. And about two years, two years, I did a little self-assessment with these 31 core competencies. And it actually allowed me to uh, do some deep reflection and understanding of, you know, what needs to be improved upon. And I think we did a good job with that because I thought our communication was very clear uh, in Cleveland. And I know it was. And, and I know Jimmy and I would talk every day. It may be at uh, 8 o'clock at night, but we'd talk every day. In both instances, you had owners that were there sometimes and not sometimes, or was Clark there more than, uh, than Jimmy? No, it, it was different. I mean, you know, there, there's three different. Let's let's take three things. I mean, Green Bay is 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 an anomaly. It's one of the most unique franchises. Um, it's got like 387,000 owners. Right. And then you have Clark, who you know, Clark. I think Clark is is a wonderful person. He lived in Dallas, and he would come to the organization once a month with Jimmy Haslam. Jimmy was there every day, and then we would talk to Jimmy every day. Uh, so there, there, there are three different types of franchises in terms of up managing and communicating to make sure that everybody's on the same page, meaning ownership all the way down. Sure. Uh, it makes sense. Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking time to talk about you know, some of the exceptional things you've been able to do in your career in terms of identifying players and, and building rosters and building teams I mean, in today's environment, as you discussed it, if you're looking at a team and the team has given away or traded away a lot of their draft capital for a couple of years, how do you go about rebuilding a team like that? From the onset, what you're going to do is you're going to spend about 10 days and to get a total understanding of what that club is. Okay, in terms of personnel, you're going to look at the offensive side of the ball, the defensive side of the ball, special teams. And then you're going to identify what holes need to be filled. When we first got to Kansas City, there were 21 holes we needed to be filled. When we first got to Cleveland, there were 22 holes that needed to be filled. So then once you've identified those holes that need to be filled, then you have to sit down as a group and come up with a strategic game plan of how we're best going to address this with the assets that we have in hand either it be salary cap or draft picks, let's see what we got. And then we're going to begin to strategize and create some more capital if we have to. It's, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I don't think you could just kind of put a clean you know, blueprint out there. I think every situation has to be assessed. I think once you understand the organization's mission statement and the direction that they want to go in, I think then that's when you'd be able to craft a plan, execute that plan and develop it. And that plan, you may start out in the first year, but at the end of the day, you better have yourself a five-year building plan and you better have yourself a five-year uh, salary cap plan as well. John, you've been a 
a tremendous help to me in the, in the profession I've been in and really respect what you've done and how you do it. And I thank you for sharing your thoughts and uh, appreciate you being on. No, I, I appreciate those kind words. And, you know, we've known each other a, a long time and I have great respect for you as you, as, uh, as you've known over the years. And, um, you know, this is fun. I love, you know, I've been in professional football here now 37 years and uh, I love it. I mean, no doubt it trips on you. <laughs> it's, no, all- it, it, it's unbelievable. You know, the best thing is I was sitting here thinking about this is since 2013, you know, this, this model that we brought with us, we've, uh, we, we brought in 12 Pro Bowl players, uh, either be the draft or free agency. And um, I mean, that's what you do because in today's football, you got to acquire players that are going to get you to that next level. And you have to also be smart enough to reward those young players that you have with contracts uh, earlier. Identify, once you've identified them early, reward them with the con- contract extensions and move on. And uh, we've tried to, you know, practice that. And it's fun. You know what? I love building the football team. Always have. And I think it's, it's one of the funnest challenges anybody can have uh, in any business is rebuilding something.